One of the highlights of A Feast for Crows is the grand entrance of Euron Greyjoy at the Ironborn Kingsmoot. Amidst some fairly run-of-the-mill Ironborn politics, Euron very suddenly silences the crowd with the ungodly sound of the Valerian Dragonbinder Horn. This monstrous Hellhorn is one of the more intriguing mysteries of the book so far, since we really don't know what it does yet, apart from burning up the insides of whomever gives it a toot. It's supposed to somehow call and bind dragons to the will of the owner of the horn, even if they aren't the one who blows it. But to be honest, that seems a little screwy, and we're basically just going on Makoro's word about what the Valerian glyphs say and how the horn works. And Makoro may be lying his ass off to manipulate Victarion for all we know. We have yet to see the Dragonbinder blown around any dragons, although that's soon to change, since Victarion seems to be preparing to have some slaves blow it in the harbor outside of Mirene, where Viserion and Rhaegal are flying around and eating the plague-ridden corpses that the slavers are catapulting into the city. What a lovely scene that must be. Now, I should mention that we do learn in A Dance with Dragons that Daenerys has knowledge of Valyrian dragon lords having used sorcerous horns to control their dragons. So it seems likely the Dragonbinder is such a horn and will indeed control dragons in some way. However, there are theories out there that it could have other sorcerous powers as well. For example, some have wondered if its magical sound might have worked some sort of compulsion magic on the Ironborn at the Kingsmoot. I mean, the Ironborn did kind of do a sudden 180 there after the horn was blown. I think that was like a 720 or a 1080. So this certainly isn't an outlandish idea, right? And then we have the symbolism and mythology attached to the horn and horns in general in A Song of Ice and Fire, which as we'll see today is nothing short of apocalyptic. So, there could even be some more dreadful purpose to Dragonbinder. Something having to do with the fall of a new long night, perhaps. Whatever the Dragonbinder horn turns out to do, I've uncovered a bunch of evidence that the person destined to sound this thing is actually none other than Daenerys Targaryen. In fact, I believe that the last books of A Song of Ice and Fire will see Daenerys growing into something very close to a full-fledged Valyrian dragonlord, minus the slavery, of course. And that means an increasing amount of Valyrian sorcery and magic may be headed Danny's way. And actually, it seems that both the Valyrian dragonhorn and a Valyrian glass candle are headed towards Daenerys, with a horn in the hands of Victarion, of course, and the candle, perhaps, being brought by Marwyn the Mage. I'm making a separate video to talk about Marwyn and Danny and the Glass Candles, so make sure you're subscribed to the channel below, click the red button and the bell, and click all to make sure you don't miss that when it comes out. And now, let me tell you why I think Daenerys is the one to sound the mighty Dragonbinder. Alright, so in J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which we're all familiar with, right? There's a famous line, made more famous by its faithful rendering in the Peter Jackson movies, from Eowyn, an incredibly brave and heroic shield maiden of the nation of Rohan. As you probably remember, the dreaded Witch King of Angmar, Lord of the Nazgul, finds himself facing a nameless knight on the battlefield when he calls down, from the back of his wyvern-like winged shadow beast, that he will Bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. 
and then finishing with a boast that no living a man may hinder me, and presumably a fiendish cackle. But that is, of course, when Eowyn removes her helmet and declares, no living man am I, and then sticks him with the pointy end. Friends, I am here to tell you that George R.R. R. Martin, who added an extra R to his name in homage to his idol, apparently couldn't resist recreating a version of this scene in A Song of Ice and Fire. Except that he hasn't done it yet, but he's going to. It has to do with the inscription found on the Valerian Dragonbinder horn, which is kindly translated from Valerian glyphs for us by Makoro the Red Priest. This is from one of Victorian Greyjoy's A Dance with Dragons chapters, and it's a bit of a longer quote, but it's packed with important clues, so listen close. That night, for the first time, he brought forth a dragon horn that the crow's eye had found amongst the smoking wastes of Great Valyria. A twisted thing it was, six feet long from end to end, gleaming black and banded with red gold and dark Valyrian steel. Euron's Hellhorn. Victorian ran his hand along it. The horn was as warm and smooth as the dusky woman's thighs, and so shiny that he could see a twisted likeness of his own features in its depths. Strange, sorcerous writings had been cut into the bands that girded it. Valyrian glyphs, Makoro called them. That bunch Victorian had known. What do they say? Much and more. The black priest pointed to one golden band. Here the horn is named. I am Dragonbinder, it says. Have you ever heard its sound? Once, one of his brother's mongrels had sounded the Hellhorn at the King's Moot on Old Wick. A monster of a man he had been, huge and shaven-headed, with rings of gold and jet and jade around arms thick with muscle, and a great hawk tattooed across his chest. The sound it made, it burned somehow. As if my bones were on fire, searing my flesh from within. Those writings glowed red-hot, then white-hot and painful to look upon. It seemed as if the sound would never end. It was like some long scream, a thousand screams, all melted into one. And the man who blew the horn, what of him? He died. There were blisters on his lips after. His bird was bleeding too. The captain thumped his chest. The hawk, just here, every feather dripping blood. I heard the man was all burned up inside, but that might have just been some tale. A true tale. Makoro turned the hellhorn, examining the queer letters that crawled across a second of the golden bands. Here it says, no mortal man shall sound me and live. Bitterly, Victorian brooded on the treachery of brothers. Euron's gifts were always poisoned. The crow's eye swore this horn would bind dragons to my will, but how will that serve me if the price is death? Your brother did not sound the horn himself, nor must you. Makoro pointed to the band of steel. Here, blood for fire, fire for blood. Who blows the hell horn matters not. The dragon will come to the horn's master. You must claim the horn with blood. All right, so the witch king said, no living man may hinder me while the Dragonbinder horn, which you'll notice refers to itself as an entity in order to make the phrasing match Tolkien, says, no mortal man may sound me and live. No living man may hinder me, no mortal man may sound me and live. Now, Daenerys actually has the potential to check both of the Dragonbinder exemptions, if you will. She is, of course, not a man, just as Eowyn was no man, and 
Danny has also flirted with transcending mortality by surviving deadly encounters with fire, both in Drogo's pyre and in Daznak's pit. I even think Danny could be resurrected at some point, likely by fire magic, just so she's sort of a better match for Jon Snow. So, that kind of immortality could be on the table as well. But even without resurrection, Danny's ability to occasionally survive encounters with fire could foreshadow her being able to transcend the burning toll the Dragonbinder extracts from its Hornblower. And take note of the fact that Makoro is actually able to confirm the rumors about the Hornblower being all burned up inside by translating and understanding the Horn's inscription, which is, of course, blood for fire, fire for blood. A price must always be paid for magic, and the price the Horn extracts is paid in fire and blood. Danny's no stranger to that, it's safe to say. Naturally, there's more to it than Daenerys simply being female, Valerian, and a potential demigod who could flout the warnings of Dragonbinder's glyphs. Danny is also wearing a specific symbolism which designates her as a hornblower. Let's uh, start explaining that one by having a closer look at that poor fellow who was convinced, or maybe tricked, by Euron into blowing Dragonbinder at the Kingsmoot, an event that Victarion was recalling in the last quote. All eyes turned toward the sound. It was one of Euron's mongrels winding the call, a monstrous man with a shaved head. Rings of gold and jade and jet glistened on his arms, and on his broad chest was tattooed some bird of prey, talons dripping blood. The horn he blew was shiny black and twisted, and taller than a man as he held it with both hands. It was bound about with bands of red gold and dark steel, incised with ancient Valyrian glyphs that seemed to glow redly as the sound swelled. Okay, so the Dragonbinder horn is banded with red gold and dark gray Valyrian steel, both of which are incised with the Valyrian glyphs that we just had Makoro read for us. Now here's the important thing, the Hornblower is banded in gold too, the rings of gold and jade and jet around his arm. Now jet is of course a black stone and so would actually resemble the Horn's Valerian steel bands, but more important are the gold bands worn by both Horn and Hornblower. Because when we see the very weird but very close match to Dragonbinder in the far north, it is both banded in gold and associated with a gold-banded Hornblower. I'm speaking here of the supposedly fake Horn of Joraman that the Wildlings brought to the Wall and threatened to use but didn't. And this next quote is from a John chapter of A Storm of Swords. Mance was not wearing armor, but his own sword was sheathed on his left hip, and there were other weapons in the tent. Daggers and dirks, a bow and a quiver of arrows, a bronze-headed spear lying beside that big black horn. John sucked in his breath. A war horn, a bloody great war horn. Yes, Mance said. The horn of winter that Joraman once blew to wake giants from the earth. The horn was huge, eight feet along the curve and so wide at the mouth that he could have put his arm inside up to the elbow. If this came from an aurochs, it was the biggest that ever lived. At first he thought the bands around it were bronze, but when he moved closer, he realized they were gold. Old gold, more brown than yellow, and graven with runes. So as you can see, this is a very close match to Dragonbinder here. Both horns are about the same size. Mance's horn is eight feet long, while Dragonbinder is described as being taller than a man, or six feet long. Both horns are shiny black, 
and they're both banded in inscription-laden metal. To be exact, Dragonbinder has Valerian steel and gold bands which are inscribed with Valerian glyphs, and this potential Horn of Joraman has bands of old gold inscribed with the runes of the first men. Now, I won't go so far as to sketch out my tinfoil about how these two seemingly matching horns once came from Azor High's dragon, who died in the north during a long night. But I will point out that an apocalyptic horn called Joraman is very likely to be playing off the apocalypse-bringing Norse world serpent Jormungandr. Snakes and dragons are basically the same thing in Norse mythology, so if the horn of Jormun, if you will, comes from a dragon, it would actually make a ton of sense. Now, setting aside that mystery, we can see that the two horns are very similar, and just as Dragonbinder is blown by a man with gold-banded arms, we find that Mance's Horn of Joraman is associated with, of course, Tormund Giantsbane, a man with very similar tastes in jewelry. Specifically, Mance tells John that if the Watch refuses to let the wildlings through the wall, Tormund Giantsbane will sound the Horn of Winter three days hence at dawn. He never does, but this threat and Tormund's constant associations with horn-blowing, such as his nickname Hornblower and Breaker of Ice, are very clear, as is Tormund's inability to resist crude humor in this scene from A Dance with Dragons, where Tormund hands over his gold bands as part of the price of going through the wall. The wildling pulled off the band from his left arm and tossed it at John, then did the same with its twin upon his right. Your first payment. Had those from my father and him from his. Now they're yours, you thieving black bastard. The armbands were old gold, solid and heavy, engraved with the ancient runes of the first men. Tormented Giant's Bane had worn them as long as John had known him. They had seemed as much a part of him as his beard. The Bravosi will melt these down for gold. That seems a shame. Perhaps you ought to keep them. No, I'll not have it said that Tormund Thunderfist made the free folk give up their treasures whilst he kept his own. But I'll keep the ring I wear about me member. Much bigger than those little things. On you, it'd be a torque. John had to laugh. You never change. Alright, so these armbands here are a perfect match for the bands on Mance's Horn of Jorman. They're old gold, and they're engraved with the runes of the first men. Pretty interesting, right? Two matching or very similar horns, both paired with horn blowers wearing matching gold bands. And now let's just pop on over to Danny's very first scene ever in a Game of Thrones and check out her jewelry. When she was clean, the slaves helped her from the water and toweled her dry. They dressed her in the wisps that Magister Illyrio had sent up, and then the gown, a deep plum silk to bring out the violet in her eyes. The girl slid the gilded sandals onto her feet, while the old woman fixed the tiara in her hair and slid golden bracelets crusted with amethysts around her wrists. Last of all came the collar, a heavy golden torque emblazoned with ancient Valyrian glyphs. Now you look all a princess, the girl said breathlessly when they were done. Danny glanced at her image in the silvered looking glass that Illyrio had so thoughtfully provided. A princess, she thought, but she remembered what the girl had said, how Khal Drogo was so rich, even his slaves wore golden collars. So once again, it's an exact match. The heavy golden torque around Danny's neck is emblazoned with Valerian glyphs, exactly like Dragonbinder's gold bands are inscribed with Valerian glyphs. Danny has the armbands of gold too, just like Tormund, and 
just like the slave who blew the dragon horn at the king's moot. And just like the slave at the king's moot, Danny is effectively a slave here as she's being bought and sold. That's what makes you a slave, being bought and sold against your will. So, will Daenerys blow the horn that perfectly matches her golden banding? Seems possible. Her occasional ability to transcend fire suggests that she might be the right person, and the no man requirement seems like a good way to echo Eowyn from Lord of the Rings. And then finally, we have this cool gold band hornblower symbolism where the hornblower matches the horn. Daenerys is the only Valerian around, save Jon, and the Dragonbinder horn, after all, has conveniently made its way to Slaver's Bay in the hands of someone who has at least some level of desire to align with Danny. I'm happy to say that there's still more evidence though, and thus more video. So it's time to talk about Nissa Nissa and Lightbringer. So, what could Martin be saying by decorating the hornblower in the symbolism of the horn? I think one part of it is probably something similar to the way that men who wield swords can be thought of as swords themselves, such as the Kingsguard being known as the White Swords, or the Dane title of Sword of the Morning referring to both the Sword Dawn and the men who wield Dawn. Azor High's Lightbringer was a burning magical sword, but Azor High was a burning magical man. So, along those lines, perhaps we're to think of the horn and the hornblower as one, at least in some sense. Daenerys being outfitted in too much jewelry, golden bands with valerian glyphs, makes her like the dragonbinder horn, but of course Danny is also herself a dragon, and comes from Valyria, just like the dragonbinder horn. So, if she gives that thing a toot, She'll definitely look good doing it, if you know what I'm saying. More importantly though, and more specifically, it seems that Martin wants us to connect the idea of magical horn blowing to the loudest sound ever in A Song of Ice and Fire, which would of course be Nissa Nissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy, which left a crack across the face of the moon. And, according to my theory, called down the moon meteor dragons of the long night. Nissa Nissa herself was the original dragon horn, in other words. And Danny is, of course, in many ways a parallel to Nissa Nissa. So, perhaps she'll sound the horn and recreate Nissa Nissa's cry. That's the idea. Danny is also a very important Azor High Reborn figure, right? She pretty much fulfills the prophecy every step of the way. So, I'd expect that if she were to blow the horn, She'd not suffer a fiery death as Nissa Nissa did, but instead experience another transcendent rebirth scene, such as in Drogo's Pyre or Daznak's Pit. So, just as both Dragonbinder and Mance's Horn of Joramen that looks a lot like Dragonbinder are both matched to Hornblowers with matching gold bands, both horns also have scenes where the forging of Lightbringer and the moon-shattering scream of Nissa Nissa are specifically evoked. The Dragonbinder scene at the King's Moot in A Feast for Crows is the more important scene by far, so we'll tackle that first, and then bounce over to the burning of the possibly fake Horn of Yorman to show you the matching symbolism. So the very first paragraph describing Dragonbinder's sound sounds like this. Sharp as a sword thrust, the sound of a horn split the air. Bright and baneful was its voice, a shivering hot scream that made a man's bones seem to thrum within him. The cry lingered in the damp sea air. 
The Legend of Lightbringer tells of Nissa Nissa unleashing a cry of anguish and ecstasy when her heart is pierced with Lightbringer. And here, the sound of the dragon horn is likened to both a sword and a scream. It splits the air as sharp as a sword thrust, which is pretty clear sword language. And of course, the glyphs on the horn's steel bands also glow redly and then burn with white fire, which means we have Valerian steel being lit on fire with magic. That's obviously very close to what Lightbringer actually is, some kind of proto-Valerian steel or dragon steel sword which lights on fire with magic. And hey, both a dragon horn and a dragon sword have a pointy end to stick people with, right? Now the screaming human language is even more obvious. The horn has a voice, which is called a scream, a cry, a wail of pain and fury that seem to burn the ears, and is described as echoing on and on and on until it filled the whole wet world. That certainly sounds like the kind of cry of anguish that could reach all the way up to the moon and crack it open. And in fact, if we look at the exact language of the Lightbringer myth, we can see that much of it is echoed in the Dragonbinder scene at the Kingsmoot. A hundred days and a hundred nights he labored on the third blade, and as it glowed white-hot in the sacred fires, he summoned his wife. Nissa Nissa, he said to her, for that was her name. Bear your breast and know that I love you best of all that is in this world. She did this thing, why, I cannot say. And Azor High thrust the smoking sword through her living heart. It is said that her cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon. But her blood and her soul and her strength and her courage all went into the steel. Such is the tale of the forging of Lightbringer, the Red Sword of Heroes. Alright, so Lightbringer glows white-hot, just as Dragonbinder glows white-hot. Dragonbinder's scream fills the world, and if Nissa Nissa's death cry reached the moon, it's safe to say that it filled the world too. Lightbringer's forging in Nissa Nissa's living heart also follows the Dragonbinder magical formula, if you will. Blood for fire and fire for blood. So as you can see, two of the major elements of Lightbringer's forging, the Flaming Sword and Nissa Nissa's cry, are very strongly evoked when Dragonbinder is blown. Said another way, the Dragonhorn is playing the symbolic role of both Flaming Sword and Screaming Nissa Nissa. I'll also toss in the fact that in the Victorian quote we read earlier, he described Dragonbinder as being warm and smooth as the dusky woman's thighs, which of course likens the horn to a woman. Thus, when we hear it scream, which Victorian describes as a thousand screams melted into one, we should think of it as a woman's scream, meaning Nissa Nissa's scream, of course. Even the dusky part of Dusky Woman could allude to Nissa Nissa's moon-breaking cry having caused the dusk of the long night, but who knows? Consider also the results of the two screams. Dragonbinder's cry is supposed to call forth and bind dragons, while Nissa Nissa's scream left a crack across the face of the moon, which I have connected to a different ancient myth about the moon cracking, which is supposed to explain the origin of dragons. Of course, if you've been to this channel before, you know that the theory here is that those old moon-cracking myths are actually about flaming meteor dragons instead of the scaled and winged dragons. Meteors are, after all, what would come from a cracked moon, not flappy, flappy fire lizards. And of course, my big theory is that those flaming meteor dragons were actually 
the cause of the long night. Meanwhile, Euron thinks the bleeding star, meaning the red comet, signals the end times and the apocalypse, when a new god, Euron, will rise from the graves and charnel pits, blah, 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 blah. The Dragonbinder Horn may figure into Euron's plans for kicking off the new apocalypse, as it certainly takes center stage in Aaron Dampere's nightmare vision of God King Euron, which is where I pulled those last lines from. Me, being the mythical astronomer that I am, have even wondered if Dragonbinder's true purpose might not be to call back the Red Comet and actually hat-tip Evelay for this idea to make some new moon meteor dragons, since Dragonbinder can easily be taken to mean Comet Binder or Meteor Binder. And once again, this is where I remind you that Dragonbinder's twin in the north, which Mance called the Horn of Jorman, is named after a world-ending serpent boy named Jormungandr. Even the legends of the Horn of Jorman suggest an association with the Long Night, since there's a belief that it can bring down the wall, and that seems likely to be something that happens when the others invade, and a new Long Night falls in the Winds of Winter. Oh, and just by the by, calling down some meteor dragons might be a good way to knock down the wall. I mean, a dragon knocked down the wall on the show, right? A meteor dragon would actually be more realistic, uh, but I digress. So, whether the dragon binder horn calls meteor dragons or actual dragons, the point is that both it and Lightbringer are basically draped in apocalyptic, world-ending symbolism and language. That means that not only is Martin evoking the ideas of a flaming sword and a horrific magical cry at the Kingsmoot, but also the themes and the context of Lightbringer mythology. Thus, you can see why I'm looking for Dragonbinder to achieve something slightly more cataclysmic than simply controlling dragons. There's one other sort of scattered-to-the-side clue about Nissanus's scream and the Lightbringer Comet and Dragonbinder all sort of relating to one another. And this is concerning Ned's Valyrian steel sword Ice and the two swords made from it when it was melted down, Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale. And I'll just grab my Damascus foam Oathkeeper here. Very safe to handle. Red and black, authentic, okay, all right. So first of all, Arya and Gendry look up at the Red Comet in A Clash of Kings, with Gendry thinking that it looks like a sword, the blade still red hot from the forge, while Arya sees it as Ned's ice. When Arya squinted the right way, she could see the sword too, only it wasn't a new sword. It was ice, her father's great sword, all Ripley Valyrian steel, and the red was Lord Eddard's blood on the blade after Sir Ilian the King's Justice had cut off his head. Yorin had made her look away when it happened, yet it seemed to her that the comet looked like ice must have after. So as you can see, Ned's sword is pretty clearly labeled as being symbolically analogous to both Lightbringer, the burning red sword, as well as the red comet, which heralds the return of Azor Ahai and Lightbringer, but only when it's stained with Ned's blood. Now consider Widow's Whale, a sword whose blade is dyed partially blood red, preserving its likeness to the red comet, and which is named after a woman's scream, Widow's Wail. Once again, it seems we're supposed to think of Nissanissa's cry as being like a sword itself, or like the Red Comet. And I say that that is because, one day in the ancient past, the Red Comet came along, flying through the sky, like a dragon, or like a huge burning sword, and struck the moon, cracking its face, calling down the meteor dragons. We can see these same ideas present with Dragonbinder, just sort of shuffled around a little bit. So on one hand, 
Widow's Wail is a dragon steel sword named after a woman's scream that can sometimes look like the red comet in the sky. While Dragonbinder is a fiery dragon horn banded in burning dragon steel that sounds like a woman's scream and supposedly calls dragons, but might actually call the red comet. And just to speculate a bit here, it could be that the dragon horn or similar horn was used by the original Azor High to call the red comet, which broke the moon, with Nissa Nissa's blood magic sacrifice perhaps being used to power some part of the ritual. This could explain why the Azor High myth speaks of a woman being sacrificed in an act of blood magic alongside the cracking of the moon. So now turning the discussion to Mance's horn, there are two evocations of a Lightbringer, or flaming swords, sort of just snuggled up right against it. First, when John sees the horn in Mance's tent, in the scene we already quoted from, Mance's wife Dala drops some ancient wisdom about the dangers of using sorcery, when John asks them why they haven't used the horn already. It was Dala who answered him. Dala, great with child, lying on her pile of furs beside the brazier. We free folk know things you kneelers have forgotten. Sometimes the short road is not the safest, John Snow. The Horned Lord once said that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. Aha, so using the Horn of Jorman that sounds a lot like Dragonbinder is like using a flaming sword, a magical flaming sword at that. Very interesting. The same could certainly be said about Dragonbinder splitting the air like a sword thrust with its shivering hot scream, couldn't it? And then we have the scene where Melisandre burns the horn of Jorman, where if we squint very hard, we can see a faint suggestion of Lightbringer. The red woman's robes of deep-dyed scarlet swirled about her and her coppery hair made a halo round her face. Tall yellow flames danced from her fingertips like claws. Free folk, your false gods cannot help you. Your false horn did not save you. Your false king brought you only death, despair, defeat. But here stands the true king. Behold his glory. Stannis Baratheon drew Lightbringer. The sword glowed red and yellow and orange, alive with light. John had seen the show before. But not like this, never before like this. Lightbringer was the sun-made steel. When Stannis raised the blade above his head, men had to turn their heads or cover their eyes. Horses shied and one threw his rider. The blaze in the fire pit seemed to shrink before this storm of light, like a small dog cowering before a larger one. The wall itself turned red and pink and orange as waves of color danced across the ice. Is this the power of King's blood? Aha, gotcha. We only had to squint hard because of the blinding light of Lightbringer. Oh, I can't look. So once again, we have the horns joined to the hip, or like I said, snuggled up against Lightbringer. And here we see the wall lighting up with Lightbringer's reflected fire, which could be foreshadowing of the wall's destruction by fire, of which there is plenty more foreshadowing, by the way. So check out the Lord Snow video and the Promise to the Others video for that stuff. My personal favorite was when Stannis straight up lays his Lightbringer sword on the map of Westeros directly across the wall, like some sort of huge Lightbringer comet striking the wall. Anyway, let's back up a tiny bit and check out the actual burning of the horn. The horn of Jorman burst into flame. 
It went up with a whoosh as swirling tongues of green and yellow fire leapt up crackling all along its length. For half a heartbeat, the runes graven on the gold bands seemed to shimmer in the air. Aha! Martin chose to have those first men runes shimmer in the fire, seemingly to draw a parallel to Dragonbinder's runes glowing red and white with fire. And on a basic level, burning the horn is a great way to associate it with fire, since it's not otherwise a fiery horn. Again, to draw a parallel with Dragonbinder, which is, in fact, a burning hell horn. Now, as to Nissanissa's cry, it comes from the mouth of the person being sacrificed by fire, along with the burning of the horn, which is, in this case, Rattleshirt, who has, of course, been glamoured to look like Mance Raider. Immediately after the burning horn is tossed down into the fire pit, it says, Inside his cage, Mance Raider clawed at the noose about his neck with bound hands and screamed incoherently of treachery and witchery, denying his kingship, denying his people, denying his name, denying all that he had ever been. He shrieked for mercy and cursed the red woman and began to laugh hysterically. Screaming and shrieking, just like the Hellhorn, and burned alive, just like Nissanissa. Add to that this line a moment later. His screams became one long, wordless shriek of fear and pain. It kind of sounds a lot like Vic's description of Dragonbinder being a thousand screams melted into one. We can even see hints of the ecstasy part of Nissanissa's anguish and ecstasy in the hysterical laughter and the little dance that Mance does as he burns a few lines later. And of course, it's not actually Mance, it's the Lord of Bones. And finally, a woman, presumably Val, adds her cry as well when it says, a woman's sobs echoed off the wall as the wildling king slid bonelessly to the floor of his cage, wreathed in fire. The sequence here is really great when we step back and look at it. We have the magical sacrifice of an important person and the horn lighting up with fire. Then we hear the great scream and right after, a flaming sword appears, which is too bright to look upon, representing the forging of Lightbringer and perhaps the appearance of flaming meteor swords which light up the sky like a thousand suns. Azor High is here, the wall is here, fire magic, and even a bunch of burning weirwood symbolism for those of you who know what's up with that. All we're missing is Daenerys. So, will Danny blow the dragon horn? We've seen plenty of evidence suggesting that she might, and it makes a lot of logical sense too. Danny certainly does need help controlling her dragons. Even Drogon, whom she has a bond with, pretty much flies where he wants to for the most part. For example, Danny thinks to herself in her last A Dance with Dragons chapter that the dragon lords of old Valyria had controlled their mounts with binding spells and sorcerous horns, but that she may do with a word and a whip. And that's to say nothing of Viserion and Rhaegal, whom Danny has little to no control over. And what if the horn does something more, something to help trigger a new long night apocalypse? Is that something Daenerys would do? Well, I've always wondered if Azor Ahai broke the moon and caused the long night on purpose, very like Euron seems to want to do, or by accident, meaning was he perhaps trying to achieve some noble purpose only to have the magic sort of backfire and create very unintended consequences. One way in which I've always expected this question to be answered would be the way it goes down this time around. Meaning, if Danny blows Dragonbinder, unaware of its apocalyptic potential, 
then perhaps say Zora High should be thought of as a similar figure. But if Euron blows it, or more likely forces or compels or tricks Danny into blowing it, well then, that might match a scenario where the original Azor Ahai was an evil, Euron-type figure who used Nissa Nissa's blood sacrifice to power dark magic that enriched himself at the expense of the world and the moon. Or maybe Dragonbinder just summons and controls dragons, and that's it. I don't know. But one way or the other, I have to think that based on the evidence and the foreshadowing, Danny will be blowing that horn. I will leave you now with one final set of foreshadowings for this, which is the presence of Nissanissa's scream at the hatching of Danny's dragons. First, we find it coming from the mouth of Miri Mazdur. Miri Mazdur began to sing in a shrill, ululating voice. The flames whirled and writhed, racing each other up the platform. The dusk shivered as the air itself seemed to liquefy from the heat. Danny heard logs spit and crack. The fires swept over Mirima's door. Her song grew louder, shriller. Then she gasped again and again, and her song became a shuddering wail, thin and high and full of agony. Notice that Miri's sound starts as a magical song and then transforms to the inhuman wail that really does make us think of Nissa Nissa's death cry, especially since Miri is being sacrificed to power dragon slash lightbringer magic as was Nissa Nissa. Then we see the bonfire itself take over the scream. The pyre roared in the deepening dusk like some great beast, drowning out the fainter sound of Mirimazdur's screaming and sending up long tongues of flame to lick at the belly of the night. The pyre is a roaring beast with many long, fiery tongues, and it's screaming louder than Mirimazdur. Then a moment later we read that the roaring filled the world. So now we're put more in mind of Dragonbinder, whose fiery screaming tongue also filled the world. Then we have the cracking of the dragon's eggs themselves, which come with incredible sounds described as loud and sharp as thunder, and then loud and sharp as the breaking of the world, which is a language evocative of something as cataclysmic as a meteor impact, giants waking in the earth, or both. Then. Finally, we get the very last lines of Game of Thrones, which describe the sound of actual dragons. As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, her black hissed, pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils. The other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. So, will Daenerys Targaryen sound the mighty Dragonbinder horn and fill the world with the music of dragons? A cataclysmic, roaring song of ice and fire, just as Nissanissa's cry of anguish and ecstasy left a crack across the face of the moon and unleashed the long night? I'd say the chances are good that Danny does give it a toot, though it's an open question just what will happen when and if she does. So leave your comments below and let me know what you think.